On today's podcast, we visit a good friend who loves to catch tarpon as much as we do. He has dedicated a large part of his life to it and ended up winning one of the biggest events, the 2019 Golden Fly Tarpon Tournament. As great as he is at this craft, he's even better as an entrepreneur. Welcome Ryan Cedars, who with his brother Roy brought Yeti to the outdoor industry. Today we cover the legendary trail of one of the great success stories in business with a company value of close to $3 billion. Hang on to your hats. This is a good one. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties went to pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. How do you like it so far, Ryan? Great. <laughs> About what I was expecting. Well, welcome um, welcome to the uh, Mill House. Well, thanks for having you know, me. It's, um, it was great to have you call. Yeah. You know, being in town, we went on a little jaunt the other day. That was a good hike. Yeah. we, You know, but, but let's just put, set the stage here. You know, a lot of the people in the industry know who you are, the outdoor world. You know, you and your brother um, brought Yeti to the table. Yep. And uh, you guys innovated it and designed it. Um, but what's really kind of interesting, on the hike the other day, you said, you know, you never get this. Jimmy Buffett called me. Unless you're Ryan Cedars, <laughs> Jimmy Buffett does not call. <laughs> um, anyway, it's great to have you, you know, and we'd like to get a little bit about your story. Sure. You know, you're, you know, growing up in, in Texas and all. Um what about Aspen? Why, have you been coming here for a number of years? You know, uh, probably about, oh, I'd say six or seven years ago, there was another family that had, he, uh, the, the husband in that family had come up to Aspen during his college years and stayed up here during the summer. And so he always rented the same house right down the river here on the other side from Woody Creek. And, uh, so we stayed in that house, you know, probably three or four years in the summertime and got to do a few float trips and the hikes and going into town and eating at the restaurants and stuff. And so that was my experience with Aspen, you know, before this trip here, you know, so you you like it, obviously. Yeah, I like it. I like my brother has a house in Telluride and I like it there a lot. Uh, you know, we can get into Telluride. We won't mention the name of that area. Yeah. We'll bleep that one. It's kind of like Vail. Well, actually, no, go to Telluride. Everybody go to Telluride. What what I like about it is I get there, I never get in a vehicle, and I got all these great hikes right from town. And there's some good hikes here, but just something about, you know, having Roy there in Telluride and um, 
and being able to do those hikes and never having to get in a vehicle. And I, when I come up to Colorado to get out of the Texas heat, you know, I, I, I love doing the hiking and trying to do what I can to stay in shape, you know. Well, it seems like over the last few years, uh, Aspen's become the new Texas. Yeah. Houston, Houston's really moved here in a big way. I've got a bunch of friends from Houston. Uh, Carlos Duncan, a yep. mutual friend of ours. Sure. His family's been here for a while, but there's a bunch of others. Yeah. Uh, two years ago, a, two th- years ago on the roundabout and the sign that said, welcome to Aspen. They got rid of Aspen. They had well, welcome to Texas. Texas. <laughs> I, saw that. I was here for that. <laughs> what is it? Does it? Did the word get out in Texas? You like, know, I this think is where that, we're going to hang. I don't, I don't think it's just Aspen. I think that, you know, <clears throat> there's more and more people moving to Texas. And I think that this time of year, July and August, they want to get out of the heat. And Colorado is fairly easy to get to. You can drive here, you can fly here, and and I, I don't think it's specific to Aspen. I think it's just uh, they want to get to Colorado, get to the mountains, get out of the heat in Texas for those you know particularly you know the end of July uh, through August before school starts back up. It's just easy to get out and and enjoy the weather up here because yeah. it's nice, you know. It's perfect. I got to say, you know, thank you for helping us come together with Yeti. Um, they're a great sponsor of the Millhouse. But if you take a look at any platform, any relationship that you have, you hopefully, you pray you get such um, relationships with a company like Yeti, which I think is the most profound company in the outdoor space. Because I think, too, not only hunting and fishing, but I think it's more like a lifestyle because it's transcended hunting and fishing as well, right? It definitely has. I mean, obviously, we can get into the story, but that's how we started in the more in the fish and tackle industry. And we were big hunters also, but uh, <clears throat> we never dreamed um, how 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 it would spill over into all these different you know industries and lifestyles and and become the brand that it has today. You know. Well, I think what's interesting, what, what comes to mind for me is in the movie uh, Field of Dreams. The motto was build it and they will come. But I think with a lot of great companies, you need to have an angle to sell it. You can have the best product in the world, but if people don't know about it, it's not going to get out there. How did you guys come about with all your short films, which which are unbelievable? And if anybody's interested to catch out or check out Yeti, the short films. Sure. Oh, my God. You know, especially uh, the bear and the destruction. I think yeah. that was a big part initially to uh, to prove the durability of your product. Yeah, that that told a story. The the whitewater kayaks, you know, the rotational molded coolers, you know, and you had to give you had to educate the people to why they were paying so much for a cooler. And so then, if you educate them to your story, then they can go tell their friends, and they basically it's the best word of mouth marketing. So, uh, you know, we started talking about how the coolers were rotomolded like a kayak no one knows what rotomolded is but if you explain it like a whitewater kayak going and you show someone going over rocks and in in the rivers and stuff like that it, it tells a durability story the uh you know there's a agency up in montana that does the bear proof testing bear containers you know and so we sent a cooler up there i think they actually called us and said hey i think your coolers might qualify for a bear resistant container and it has up there in what um oh i don't know if it was west yellowstone but they have this big facility they put it out there put peanut butter and salmon in there lock it up throw it out there with their grizzlies for two hours and if they can't get into it you get certified and we had to do a a small cooler all the way up to the 
you know, the biggest one we make. And then they certified the whole line. And that tells the durability story also. So they came to you. They did. And so this is not your creativity, the bear. The bear was not, but we used it in our marketing. And every- I was going to say, you were a fucking genius yeah. getting a bear ripping that thing around <laughs> the garage. Right. And so our early commercials showed the whitewater kayak. They showed the bear trying to get into it. And it just told that story. And even though... You know, there's a small percentage of people that are using these coolers camping in real bear country where it's required. Right. right. It 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 sounds neat and it, it tells that story and it, it allows them to, you know, tell their buddies about the cooler and, mm-hmm. and tell your side of the story instead of them just making up stuff on their own. You know. Right. Well before we get into Yeti, I wanted to okay. I don't think many people know like your background in the whole um right out of college. You created a fishing rod business, correct? That's correct. Was that your dad or you? No, so that was me. So I was a customer of my dad. So to, to kind of back up, we grew up, you know, in fifth grade, I moved to, that was in 84. We moved out 25 miles outside of, the, out of Austin and it was out in the hill country. And I was telling you about this on our hike the other day. We had access to uh, 600 acres on mile of onion Creek, right across the street from where I grew up. And, uh, we had that land leased growing up. And so my parents moved us. We, I was born in Houston. I have two younger brothers and a sister. They thought they grew up in Austin. And so we had a lot of family in Austin and they wanted to get us out back up to this area to kind of get us out of Houston and, you know, try to keep us out of getting into drugs and stuff like that. My dad always says it kind of backfired with how we got into the hunting and fishing, you know, we just went crazy with it. And so having all that access to, you know, I started out with a pellet gun and rabbits across the street and then, you know, had Onion Creek there. We were fishing all the time and then I was hunting, you know, I went crazy on white-tailed deer and uh, spent, you know, before school I would hunt and after school I ended up quitting basketball because I'd get out of basketball practice and drive home and see all the the deer out in the last 30 minutes before dark. And I just couldn't handle it anymore. You know, tell me the story of the first time you ever went hunting. You You know, uh, I, I, very, very young. Oh yeah. So, uh, you know, in Houston, when it would rain, we had these ditches out in front of, in the neighborhood, these ditches for draining the water off. And, my parents said that when it would rain, I would stand at the door in my diapers waiting for it to stop and go out and catch crawfish in the ditches. And even through the time we left to come up to Austin, I would, you know, anytime it would rain, I was ready to get out there and I pulled a little a red wagon behind me and I'd catch all the crawfish I could, you know. So yeah. I, I just had the hunting was in my blood. My granddad was a big hunter. My dad was a big bird hunter and fisherman. And it was definitely in my blood growing up, you know, from a as early as you can get. It was, you know, it was just part, part of me, you know. Are you more passionate towards hunting or fishing? You know, I feel like, uh, probably hunting, but it's, I feel like hunting's more like, you know, like shorter seasons, you know, that you can fish year round. And so it's just like getting geared up for the hunting, but I would hate to have to give either one of them up. You know, I'm, I, you know, I love them both. Well, if you bring Yeti to the table and sell it. You can do this. Yeah, that's right. You can do whatever you want. The rest of your life. I, I always tell my, my, my son, he's about to turn 10. And I always tell him, you know, if, if something happens to me, I want you to remember whitetail, quail, redfish, and tarpon. Those are the four things you need to remember. <laughs> the four <laughs> pillars. Yes. <laughs> in the outdoor world, you know. So let's go back to you in school and college. Okay. Did you see an issue with the rods being made or what? No. How'd you so, come up with that? So to kind of back up, my dad was a 
a woodshop teacher out of college. Um, he he um, taught woodshop when the, back back in Houston area in those days they had a lot of money in that Houston area and they had unbelievable wood shops and, and he won all kinds of, with his students in middle school and high school, won all kinds of state fairs and stuff. And then he was, he loved fishing and uh, he noticed that there was a problem with uh, the coatings that when you wrap the guide on with thread, they were using varnishes back in the seventies. And so in, uh, in 77, he started this company called Flex Coat, and it was epoxy coating, a clear, flexible coating for fishing rods. And basically, every every rod company in the U.S. or custom rod builder uses Flex Coat. And so it's it's still it's a niche business, and it was it's a kind of a lifestyle type business that we grew up in. Our family vacations were based around you know going to you know the the ICAST trade show a long time ago. It's called the Athma Trade Show and the Fly Tackle Dealer. And so we just kind of grew up in, in, in that, in the fishing industry. And so companies I looked up to back, you know, 30 years ago or longer, you know, by going to these trade shows, I, you know, I always loved G Loomis, Sage, St. Croix. Those were kind of like dream companies of mine, you know, Hardy, <coughs> Hardy, yeah, Hardy, all that <laughs> no. Hardy was a little bit further I'm out there for me. That with... was before I got involved with the saltwater products. That's right. And so Do you uh, fish Hardy now. I fish uh, G Loomis. So. Get the fuck with a, out one here. piece. <laughs> one piece Loomis is what I've been fishing for the tarpon. Well, yeah. if you want to get a good rod, I got one in my garage. I, I really haven't tried the Hardy that much. I need to. But those. It, anyway, one of the but, things was I just grew up with those brands. With the brands, every we all did. I, look, I was with Loomis for twenty years. Yeah. Until I got involved with Hardy and tried to help yeah. them, you know, grow the saltwater. And, and down in the Keys, yeah. I see a, a, you know, kind of a fifty-fifty mix of either Hardy or G Loomis. It seems what I see most right. of. You know. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so, you know, kind of growing up, going to those trade shows, seeing the different companies, seeing the the fly reel companies, going to the fly tackle dealer show, you know, the and then seeing my dad's lifestyle. You know, when we got when we got off the bus, you know, coming home from school, he was available to go do stuff, and he was always like encouraged us to do anything outdoors. You know, if we if we got into anything. We would do it full blast, whether it was skateboards, we built a big eight foot half pipe, you know, or whether it was, you know, fishing going, you know, back then we didn't have boats. Uh, my dad didn't own a boat back then. So we would go places where you could wade fish and we would drive to Louisiana fish in the surf in the wintertime we'd fish, you know, off the sides of the road, catch redfish. And then, uh, <clears throat> basically, you know, if I, I, if I needed money back then, I built fishing rods, middle school, high school, college. I built custom fishing rods to, to make extra money. I never mowed yards, did anything else. So the only thing I ever knew was building fishing rods. And then going to the trade shows, you know, I would see these rod companies. It was like a dream of mine to have my own rod company and be a customer of my dad's, you know. And I got to go visit these rod companies with him and, and meet everybody at the trade shows and stuff like that. So you know, I basically went to college, wanted to just graduate. I didn't, you know, I found a degree. I, I ended up graduating from Texas A&M with a wildlife biology degree. And I enjoyed the degree, enjoyed going to, to college. But, but throughout college, you knew what you were going to do. hundred yeah, percent. Right. When I got out, I wanted to build fishing rods. Right. And so in, I got out in the fall of 96 and, you know, early 97 started this company called Waterloo Rods. And, and it was, you know, I really enjoyed it. I went to uh, some of my own trade shows, and uh, there was a series of um, shallow water expos um, in Florida that I went to and would show my rides, met a lot of good people there. 
And I had this company, I built, you know, casting and spinning rods for, you know, shallow water, coastal fishing, bass rods, because I was in the middle of Texas, there's a lot of bass fishing, and then fly rods, not a ton of fly rods, but I was always into fly fishing. So, um, and I had a lot of freedom and flexibility, but I, I never made too much money at it. And, and, uh, I learned a lot and was had it a just you, it was me. And I always had one full-time employee and gotcha. we built a thousand to 1500 rods a year and I could get by on that, but it would have been tough to like right. support a family. And I, I wasn't really good at growing it. And, and in 2005, I had a, one of my best customers that bought rod, not a store, but that bought rods from me. He, he just he would order rods from me all the time. And he was by far my biggest customer. He, and he was moving from Austin down towards the Texas coast. And he, he asked if I would sell the company. And I, I said, you know, I thought that was interesting. And he named a price and it wasn't enough to get me interested. Cause that's the only thing I'd ever done is build rods. And, and I just thought that's kind of flattering, but, um, so that was probably like springtime of 2005. And then in like, um, you know, August of 2005, I was up late one night coating rods like I normally did after my, the guy that was helping me went home, I would stay up and coat rods and let them dry overnight with the flex coat on there. You rotated them to let them dry. And, uh, he called me and the phone rang. I answered, Hey, this is Dan. He goes, what would you sell that company for? And so I named a price that I thought was high and he said sold. And my heart just sank because I knew this guy was fucking serious. You know, there's no getting out of it after I said sold or after I named the price and he said sold. Right. right. And, but I knew it would, you know, it'd be hard for me to save up that kind of money by building rods at my current pace. Sure. And so we closed about September 15th on the company and it wasn't a lot of money, but back then to me it was. And my buddy was already up in Southern Colorado hunting that public land elk. I drove up there, met him. I hunted two weeks with him in Colorado. And then, um, then I whitetail hunt. I went to Illinois that year, South Texas. I was just hunting, you know, basically all, you know, four months there. And I, I got back, um, from hunting and, you know, January rolled around and, uh, Yeah, I'm like, what am I, what am I going to do now? And in 2002, to kind of back up a little bit, my youngest brother got out of college and he wanted to start his own company also. He, he messed around with shooting benches for a while and then, uh, for like rifle shooting benches. And then he started manufacturing or or rigging out really these aluminum boats for fishing the way we like to on the, on the Texas coast. And, um, and we were tear, we were putting, you know, igloos on these boats. You'd usually have one right in front of the center console and maybe one up on the front of it. And we were just tearing up the coolers every single trip. And in 2002, while I was at one of those shallow water fishing expos, I went into the Sunshine Ace Hardware in Naples, Florida. And I was with my buddy TJ, who sold, he sold saltwater flies. And uh, he worked out of uh, my little shop there for a while and then went off on his own. And he, he sold flies to them, we walked in there, turned to the left, and there was this big pile of rotomolded coolers there. And I'm like, you know, these look tough, unbelievable. So I called Roy and said, you need to start putting these on your boat. And uh, so he did, and he became a distributor for this company in 2002 and started, and started selling these coolers. And I could see he was getting stressed out with, you know, by 2005, he was busy distributing these coolers. And... Uh, and so anyway, 
um, I the the only class I, you know, when I got to A and M, I felt like everybody was like, you know, academically way up above. I was like at the bottom of the of the. Of You're the being class. humble. Yeah, no, I was. <laughs> I promise. Don't they wish they were all you now? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, anyway, the only class though that I'd ever done well in, and I'm a slow reader. My my youngest brother's fairly dyslexic. I'm sure I am also, but not to his level. But I did really well in this, you know, this uh, law class. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll go to law school. You know, that's, I, I need to do something to make some money. And, uh, <clears throat> and January rolled around, January 2006. And I saw that Roy, I could see he was working hard. He already had a couple kids or at least one kid by that point. And uh, I could just tell that he was working hard and a little bit stressed out with his workload. And so... I was done hunting. It was January. I called him and I said, Hey, let me come help you out. And will you pay me $10 an hour to come work in the warehouse? And he's like, hell yeah, come on down. And so I met him down at the warehouse and, and I had my leftover, you know, rod company money. I paid some taxes, bought a few stupid things and, and had the leftover money. And, um, and so I started helping him and we went over there this these coolers were manufactured in thailand that he was distributing at the time and so since he had his older brother with him he's like let's go over to thailand and and straighten these guys out because we never had enough product and there was over the four years from 2002 to 2006 he had learned what was wrong with that design it was still you know uh much improved over anything else we had at the time but there was a lot of shortcomings in that original cooler that he was distributing. And so we got over there to Thailand, which was a stretch for where we grew up to go over to Thailand. Yeah, and, no and, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it was a different world over there right. for us. But going together, it kind of gave us a little confidence, sure. you know. And we got over there, and they didn't listen to anything we had to say. We kind of just ran into a brick wall right away. And no, were you guys representing the company that he was um, – uh, repping for at the time, yeah, trying so, to help that company make so, a better cooler. So we were the U.S. distributor, and for this company that was selling coolers into the Australian market, right. they sold some coolers to like street vendors and stuff like that. But there was a company that um, that was selling into the Australian market, and then we were, you know, Roy had worked his way up from, you know, he quickly realized that he could make money selling coolers and he was losing money building boats, you know? Right. And so, so you went on behalf of the company this is not even like, okay, let's maybe go over there and see what we can build on our own. No, no, this was, was just not there yet. No, this was, this was not there yet. This was pre Yeti. This was like, Hey, let's, we can make money selling coolers, but we need to let, we need to get these guys in Thailand to understand that we need more product and we need some improvements on the design. And we got over there and they weren't open to listening to Roy's ideas, you know. And so Roy had another contact in the Philippines that had just reached out to him and said, hey, I see what you're doing in the U.S. with coolers. I'm a manufacturer. You, you may view me as a competitor, but all I care about is manufacturing coolers. He was an Australian guy that had moved to the Philippines to manufacture because that was his love was manufacturing. Right. And so just kind of, you know, we we ended up while we were in Thailand say hey we're going to go travel around that's what we told the the Thailand guys and we ended up booking a flight to the Philippines is a 3 hour flight over there for us you know coming from out in the country outside of Austin you know we we you're reading in big red letters death to drug traffickers and stuff like that you know yeah. it, it freaked us out a little bit and so 
Ivan was the guy's name in the Philippines. Why he, would it freak you out if you're not carrying drugs? Well, it just like it, <laughs> it just was like a different world. You know, yeah, it no, wasn't I, the U.S. I, I get it. Yeah, yeah, throw the hill there. country of Texas. Come yeah. on, man. And so anyway, uh, <clears throat> Ivan picks us up uh, with his wife Gloria, who was uh, you know from the Philippines, and picks us up in a Zuzu Trooper, and and we start driving out of Manila. And out to the old Clark Air Force Base where this was a, now it was turned into an economic zone where there was manufacturing going on. And because uh, the U.S. shut down their Air Force Base there after a volcano went off, I think. And so we're driving out of town. Well, to control the traffic there, you have to have an even or an odd license plate, you know, to come into town that day. We had the wrong license plate. So you got these kids with machine guns trying to stop us. Ivan's kind of arguing back with them. You know, we'd be, we'd get up some speed and, you know, someone would step in front of us with a gun, he'd go around them. And then we, we finally got oh, away. Wow. Yeah. And it freaked us out, you know, but luckily, you know, having your brother there, it helped out. And we, we get over there and we get to see the, the manufacturing facility was clean, much different than, than Thailand. And, and what was different about it was Ivan was listening to, to Roy's ideas on how to manufacture cooler. Ivan was also selling into the Australian market. And Australia was way ahead of the U.S. on coolers because, you know, Igloo and Coleman and Rubbermaid, you know, all the value had been engineered out. It was all about cost selling to Walmart and Academy and stuff like that. And so it was just the cheapest cooler possible was built in the U S but if you take that cheap cooler and ship it over to Australia, it's expensive by the time it gets over there. So they were a little bit better at buying more expensive stuff over in Australia. And so, you know, basically Ivan, um, you know, listen to Roy's ideas. He already had a basic cooler design that we could start with, start modifying to Roy's, you know, kind of dream of what a, a cooler should be. And when, by the time we left the Philippines to fly back to Thailand, and then back home, you know, we decided, you know, forget this company in Thailand, we're going to start our own business and, you know, start our own brand name and, and do this from scratch. And, uh, I mean, it was like flying out of Manila. There, it was like a light bulb. We got to do this. We got to do it. Who said that first? Well, Roy, probably, yeah. And is he smarter than you? He he's you know growing up with him. I mean, I, I mean, you said come that. to the table, but you come to the table, yeah. with certain things, yeah. You know, and he, he really you have you have a, a you know somebody who's that creative guy, and the other guy can do something else to help facilitate you know that little team. Yeah, he he is super creative, and and over the years watching him you know, with his involvement in Yeti, it was really impressive Gr having grown up with him and then have him as Yeti continued to grow, keep up with all the different functional areas of the company. It, it blew me away, you know? So but, what did you, what part of the company do you, were you? So you Roy, Roy had kids at the time, so he wasn't, you know, he couldn't travel as right. much. So he was all into design and running the office back at home, you know, and he was real driven and I was, I had all these relationships from building fishing rods, like with Flip sure. and, and these guys and, and going to all the trade shows. And so I, I would load up a van full of coolers and drive out to a trade show in Vegas or whatever, eventually start shipping coolers. And so I was involved in the sales and marketing. And, right. and as we got started, you know, there was a, <coughs> a void. You go into any sporting goods store there is, you know, that like in, in Austin, there was a, a sporting goods store called McBride's. Well, everybody that comes in there is a cooler user, but McBride's can't sell coolers and make money. So there was a, because, you know, they're cheap. They could go mm -hmm. buy them at Walmart cheaper than they could, you know, buy them through their distribution network. So everybody coming into all these hunting and fishing stores, 
you know, used coolers, but, but no one sold them. So there's a void on the shelf. And when we come out with a high dollar cooler and show the, the retailer how they could make a hundred dollars selling a cooler, well, they start, once they see that they sell, they start listening pretty quick and make room for the coolers on the shelves. How'd you come up with the name Yeti? So when just about to ask. Okay. So when we were leaving the Philippines on the plane, Roy and I are sitting next to each other. We start coming up with names and Yeti was one of the 10 names we came up with. What were the others? You know, uh, I could maybe remember a few of them, but none of them stuck. That's for sure. So what we did is we made this list of 10 and Yeti being the kind of the Bigfoot of the Himalayas, cold, harsh, you know, environment, you know, tough. We Mm -hmm. it just kind of fit, you know? And, um, and so we get back to Texas and start asking our friends and family, hey, what do you think about these names? We're starting our own company. And whether they liked Yeti or not, we came back to them a couple of weeks later, a month later. The only name they could remember of those 10 was Yeti. And, so, mm-hmm. and I always liked the, you know, on Sage Fly Rods, I always liked that name. It was simple, four letters. Right. It looked good on a hat. Um, and I wanted something that, and I, I never really liked the name G. Loomis, because it was everybody wanted to talk to Gary Loomis. And so you wanted to, to build a, a bigger company. You wanted a name that was bigger than the person behind right, it. Right. And so Yeti just stuck. And I didn't know how it was going to be received by we had a lot of real redneck, you know, you know, country guys and Yeti, you know, the way they would say it and stuff Yeti. like that. And so but it was <laughs> Yeti. It was well received. And it was easy to remember. And I think it was a big part of our success. Had we had another name, I'm not sure that it would have been. I mean, we might have got there, but, uh, and we started selling these, you know, trucker, or not selling, but giving away these trucker hats. Anytime someone would have a retail sale, you know, we're, had plenty of profit built into that cooler. We're throwing a hat in the cooler as we ship it out. Hat and t shirts, that's what I read. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. During this process of creating Yeti, how many fights did you get in with Roy? You know, um, we when we set up the company, I had my money that I invested from the rod company into this deal. And we went to a, a kind of a family friend that we'd grown up with. It was a lawyer there where we went to high school. And we said, hey, let's set up this company. We want to have it 50-50. And the lawyer was like, oh, that's a terrible idea. You need to have a decision maker. So it was 50.5% Roy, 49.5% me. And we hardly in in from 2005 to 2012 when we sold it the first time we hardly had a you know crossword i mean he he did drive me pretty hard like he was more serious than i was about working hard and uh you were hunting and fishing i was doing a lot of that yeah what yeah what would your life been like without roy uh you know i don't know i wouldn't i don't think i ever would have i wasn't driven like roy was for like Roy could see more the kind of light at the end of the tunnel. He was a visionary. He, I think so. Yeah, he was more of that. We, we both knew <clears throat> we wanted to own our own company. And we were only used to, to my dad's company, Flexcoat, where he wore all the hats. He was, you know, they were, he was involved in everything. And it was more of a lifestyle type company. But from the beginning of Yeti, you could, it was growing so fast the entire time that you could always say that, hey, you might be able to sell this thing and never have to work again. And that was kind of appealing too. the way we like to hunt and fish. You know, if you could potentially make enough money to not have to work anymore, well, then you could do more hunting and fishing, you know. And uh, and what what we really lucked out with with Yeti was was the 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 market size with coolers and basically anything outdoors, because our, our vision was just fishing and maybe a little bit of hunting sporting goods stores. 
but we just didn't realize how big the market was, you know, for, for products like Yeti offers for the outdoors. You know, you know what's interesting as a, um, as a purchaser of products, whatever it be, you know, fun things, work things, you always know what you want to buy. It's always the best, but you might not want to, you know, want to afford it at that point. Yeah. So you don't buy it, you buy something else. And then a matter of six to eight months down the road, you end up buying twice because you end up buying the best after the fact. Yeah. And I've seen that with a lot of things in my life. So I think that transformation for everybody's consciousness to buy the best initially, and the difference is a lot, but yet it's still a cooler. Yeah. So it's not like you're buying a boat. That's right. And, and that's something my dad always, you know, supported us in when we were getting into, you know, we always build our, the best fishing rods. We'd always buy the, you know, <clears throat> the best Shimano reels or best fly reels. We, you know, you buy once and you're done, you're done. And he always supported, we didn't have a ton of money growing up, but we were, you know, upper middle class and we were always buying the best stuff. And, and as much time as I thought about hunting and fishing, uh, you know, basically I wanted the limiting factor to be me. I didn't want it to be my equipment, you know, right. and, uh, and I didn't want to have to ever think about question my equipment that I had. And so I was just like, from a very, very early age, I was obsessed with always having the best stuff for my outdoor activities, you mm-hmm. know, from an outsider looking in, I would say personally, you know, thinking about Yeti, your greatest success was your marketing because I first heard of Yeti from flip. Yeah. And his TV shows and him pulling the boat, you know, off the, off the casting platform and talking about wildly stronger, keeps ice longer. Yeah. I mean, how important was flip in this growing, growing stage? So, so incredibly important. So, you know, through my rod building days, I met flip through going to these trade shows and I would, I would go around and get, you know, you know, find all the guys that I liked at these trade shows at the fly tackle dealer and, and stuff like that and get to know them. And, um, and I would, I would always offer to build them a fishing rod. And, you know, it, another thing about the cooler business, there was also a void with sponsorships. You know, you could go get anybody you wanted to just by sending them a cooler and say, and it's a high-end cooler and stuff like that. But Flip, I was, I forget, you know, how, I, I do remember the trade show where I met him back when I was in high school, probably. It could have been college, but in uh, anyway, at this trade show, you know, that he's always sponsored by a rod company It's you know, the normal stuff is hard to get into. If you had a rod company, a real company, flip was already sponsored. So what I did is I said, Hey, you know, Hey, I, I build custom rods. Is there anything you're missing? And he start, he got all fired up on this five foot plug rod and he started explaining, no one builds a five foot plug rod anymore. And he started talking about the tip speed and, and how you can fight fish, shoulder, shorter fulcrum and stuff like that. And so I, I started building him a couple of these five foot plug rods. And after that, me and Flip were big buddies. I go to Florida. He had loaned me his canoe to go, me and TJ who built the flies and tell, you know, kind of point us in the right direction and go discover stuff on our own. And so Flip was just a great resource for me, uh, invited me before Yeti, invited me on a turkey hunt in Texas that, and you got to hang out with him shooting his recurve at turkeys. And we did some shotgun stuff also. And it's just fun to hang out with him. Well, by the time that I was friends with them and friends with a lot of people in the industry, but when we started Yeti and we started getting into put doing some print advertising, the very first advertising we did, I called Flip and he's like, yeah, what, what can I do for you? I sent him, you know, sent him a color and said, Hey, we need some sort of testimonial from you, some sort of quote. 
And he came up with the perfect one right off the bat. You know, he said something about he's been buying coolers his entire life and he's, you know, he's found, you know, he's done now. And he had a couple Spanish words he threw in there and he goes, I have Yeti now and I don't, I'm done buying coolers. He flippetized it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so we had that little print ad and then we, uh, I met a guy that, um, that I've met a guy at the ICAST show. And at that time, ICAST and Fly Tackle Dealer was, was, uh, all one show. And he said, you know, Ryan, I've been walking around this show, the, uh, you know, all the, the whole floor. And this is the only company that I, that I really, you know, kind of draws me in that I like, I like the potential for, he goes, I love your product, but I don't think you're doing a great job of telling the story about why you would do this. And his name was Walt Larson from scales advertising. And he started telling me about the, um, the, the archery, you know, the, the bow hunting, you know, companies he had been involved with. And I, I was serious into bow hunting at the time. I knew every company that he represented, uh, and that was like rage, cutty back, right? All that. Yeah. yeah. And so as soon as he talked to me about bow hunting, I recognized him from the cutty back commercials, but he was involved in Matthews marketing, uh, rage, cutty back and rage is crazy. Broadheads have been around forever. And, you know, I think it was Rocky mountain that owned the technology of rage. And he's like, Oh, we need to change the name. And in two years, they took over half the broadhead market with, with the rage. And so again, that's a name related thing. It, it is name related. And, uh, had they brought out that, that broadhead under the Rocky mountain, uh, brand, I don't think it would have been nearly as successful, right. but you come out with a new brand and, and you explain the story where they can go tell their friends why they're using rage. And he did that with, you know, the, there's all kinds of you know, targets, the Glendale buck and block hmm. targets right, right. and, uh, you know, some of the bow sites back in the day, Montana black gold was a popular bow site. And just everything he was involved with would just seem to be up at the top. And so he, what he did is help us kind of boil down our story and, uh, and then encourage us to start advertising 2008 or nine on outdoor television. And back then that was a great outlet to advertise on. And we got Flip to do a, a commercial for us. On Walker's? No, was, this was, was after Walker's. One, this right? was after Walker's. So, but what we did do is Flip got one of his, uh, you know, television film guys, you know, to film this commercial with Walt's input and, and talking about how the coolers rotor molded and how the ice lasts and how the coolers bear proof. And you got Flip out there pulling his boat, standing on a cooler and just told the story. And it was, it, it gave was, you credibility. It did. Sure. And Flip obviously had a lot of credibility within the, the, the saltwater fishing that I liked, you know? And so it was a big deal. And Flip, you know, did all that stuff, you know, just because he wanted to. You if, know, I, right. if I'm not mistaken, when you put, didn't you put like a piece of plywood on top of the cooler and use it as a uh, casting Yeah, platform? so back back in 2000, so when we first started getting into boats, um, before we started building boats, we had these aluminum boats and I had a, we had an Igloo 94 mounted on the front of this aluminum John boat. And uh, <clears throat> we had, since you stand on it, you're going to cave in the lid. We put a piece of, you know, plywood on top of that and then coated it with flex coat, my dad's company, and, and put a little grid in there, probably some sand or something to give it some, you know, where you wouldn't slip off right. of it. And, you know, back before uh, we had access to boats, I drove from Austin to the Florida Keys. My dad always had a van and I'd have one buddy. I had this buddy, Dan Smith, in high school and early college and then later switched over to my buddy, TJ. I drove to the Florida Keys 13 times to fish at night underneath the bridges 
and for tarpon for tarpon right or whatever we could find but we were mainly targeting tarpon and and mostly with a you know a spinning or casting rod we would have fly rods with us we'd have a van full of rods had two mattresses in the back we would sleep all day in that heat down there and then but if you get up at night and go below all these bridges it was unbelievable what you can find at nighttime and so <clears throat> we did that and uh and then finally got my dad into you know helping us out getting boats so we got this little john boat got the cooler on top of it and I, we had met uh, one of the nights we spent the night you know near the lorelei when the when back then the uh florida keys outfitters was in that parking lot there we spend the night in that parking lot in the van yeah in the van how hot was that oh it was hot at night and even hotter during the daytime because we wanted to fish at night you know and we would find different places to park and sleep in the van and fish at night. Homeless. Yeah, that's what it was like. <laughs> homeless fishermen. It was all, we didn't have the money to do anything else. So anyway, but we, every time we'd go for, we'd get out of school in, in the middle of May or, you know, whenever we get out and we'd go there for a week or two at a time and, and, and walked into Florida Keys Outfitters and Sandy was in there and we were like, hey, we got, we have enough money. We want to go out on one guided trip for bonefish. Do you have any recommendations? He goes, oh, this guy back here, time flies in the back. He's a new guide. His name was Diego Rullier. <laughs> and so. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And so, Diego, yeah. so we, we went back there and talked to him while he was tying flies. And he was pretty young then. And uh, he was a little bit older than us, though, because we were probably late high school, early college. It had to be late high school. And, uh. And so we, and back then you're dealing with pay phones. And so we, we called Diego, talked him down on his price. You know, this is all the money we got. Will you take us out? You know, and we, we went out that we took fly rods and spinning rods the next day. And me and my buddy, Dan, both caught a bonefish on a spinning rod with Diego the next day and then became big friends with Diego. Cause we, I started building fishing rods and Diego would invite us to spend the night at his house, you know, to stay there if we needed a place to stay or whatever, just, just hit it off. And every time we'd come back after that, we'd save up enough money to go fishing with him one day, you know? And so he, at the time he eventually lived on duck key there and we would rent a little place up, you know, uh, uh, you know, near Tavernier, And then we would keep our boat at Diego's house, our aluminum boat and fish, you know, once we started getting serious into fly fishing, we would uh, <clears throat> just find know, out where Rob Fordyce is. Well, we didn't know Rob <laughs> at the time. We didn't know Rob, but we started fishing around Duck Key, and then we'd go out and we found that you know just on the front side of Duck, Key, you know, we'd run out, you know, back up towards Isla Mirada. We found this big the, white the spot. tarpon highway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so we'd get out there early and anchor up, and we would, you know, we couldn't pull that damn boat, but we'd get up there, stand on top of that igloo, and cast a tarpon coming by. Well. Here comes each day, this guy would keep coming and getting in front of us out on the white spot and be able to pull to these fish and end up cutting off cutting, our, cutting what we off. thought were cutting off. We didn't know the rules. We didn't realize what we had found there. So was, you weren't yelling, you weren't yelling at him. No, we weren't, we weren't at first, but was he yelling at you? I uh, no, not at first, you know? And so eventually after he pulled way around to cut off some fish that were coming to us because we couldn't pull, TJ raised up his hands and like, what are you, and then it didn't know it was Rob at the time. And we didn't know who Rob was. The big you know? Rob Fordyce. Yeah. Oh man. He, he started yelling back at us. We were like, Ooh, <laughs> he's in a muscle shirt, you know? And we just, we were, we knew we were outside of our, this was in 96 that we did this. And we were in, you know, you can bleep this out, but we were at the 
We didn't have any idea that we were at one of the best places in the Keys. Tarpon capital of the world. Yeah. Don't go there, anybody, because <laughs> these big guys still live there. That's right. And so, that anyway. so funny. But when I started fishing with Rob in 2012, he invited me to fish with him in Texas and then invited me to start fishing tarpon with him in the Keys. We put that story together. He remembered us out there. and I, you know. Well, let's go back real yeah. quickly because I want to I continue this relationship with Rob. Okay. But, um but the Yeti, you put that wooden plank on top of the Yeti, and that became no, of, your, the, of the igloo. Yeah. But that was originally of the igloo. Yeah, so that was back in 96 before we even had a thought of, of the cooler company. We always were just trying to figure out how to make stuff better and work, you know? So when you got the Yeti, you didn't need that, that, that piece no. of wood because the yeah, Yeti that's was right. strong And enough. so 2002 is when Roy started messing with you know higher-end coolers, and 2006 is when we decided to just start our own company. Right. But we have been you know playing around with coolers since 96, modifying our own you know, igloos since 96. Because nothing you know. was working. That's right. It was, they were just so cheap and would just fall apart. And the wood plank was because when you stood up there, it would <coughs> it cave in. in. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, uh, and I got, we got a great picture of that that's still it's around. It's the there. best photo. Yeah. I love that I photo. Love that, that, right, that, right in front of Rob Ford. Yeah, I'm going to ask you for it because I'm going to put that up. I'll, I'll yeah. get it. But that, that photo, that was TJ and I, and that was right out in front of Duck Key there. And a storm was rolling in, got out my Nikon. I'm standing on the cooler. My you know, you see these real dark clouds out in front of you. My pants are blowing hard in the wind, and we took that one picture. I'm standing there with my 12-weight fly rod, an able reel with an offset hand. I mean, just it's just back in the day, the way things were. And we actually, you know, hooked up to some ocean side fish there, and uh, we never did land any to the hand. But, you know, we'd me and TJ spent two weeks out there on that trip, you know, just every day getting up early. Casting all day long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's unbelievable how many That's fish so you see. cool. Yeah. Good for you. Well, it's kind of interesting because moving on now from the Yeti and your relationship with tarpon happened a long time ago. How did you first start to see these fish and and have this appeal to catch them? You know, I think probably, uh, you know, thinking back to watching Walker's K, you know, uh, watching Flip on television, hearing that music start up at the beginning of the show and seeing all these cool fish he was catching. And I love saltwater fish and love redfish, and that's what I knew about. But hell, I wanted to go do this, you know, tarpon and snook and all, you know, bonefish and all that kind of stuff, you know. So uh, that's probably, you know, and I read a lot of magazines back then, and but I think it was Walker's K that just kind of pushed us over the edge to go kind of crazy. I mean, Flip's been a big influence in in, in my life and Roy's and every, all my buddies. Sure. You know? Still life, is now. My, my life, Nikki's life. I yeah. mean, how can you not have a life in fishing without having Flip as a part of it? Yeah. I remember one time when I was on one of those turkey hunts with him, you know, we, we would go and throw out a drift sock and just drift across the flat and, and throw top waters and stuff like that. And he goes, he said, Ryan, you need to start polling. You're just drifting aimlessly like a tumbleweed across the flats instead of picking out where you want to go. And I always... Perfect remember, flipism. Yeah, I remember that, <laughs> drifting like a damn tumbleweed. You know? <laughs> so anyway. Well, let's jump ahead. Yeah. So here you are cutting Rob Fordyce off at mm-hmm. his favorite fishing hole. <laughs> yeah. And now all Hold on, years. they were there first. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> we would get there before him, but uh, that didn't mean anything. We didn't know, we didn't know the rules. So. So you jump ahead. Now you're fishing with Robin all the tournaments. You finished second in the Gold Cup, which is the biggest tarpon tournament there is. Yeah. You won the Golden Fly. How did that relationship from a couple homeless fishermen cutting him off to becoming a good pal and winning tournaments with him? Well, it helped. The whole Yeti deal helped out a lot. You know, I'm not going to, you know, that that was a big deal. So, so getting going with Yeti, 
you know, we had Yeti going and I, you know, obviously met Rob through flip over the years. And then one day I get a call from Rob about, Hey, I'm guiding in Texas this summer. You want to come fish with me? Well, I meet him down at South Padre and I'm, I'm, I was good at red fishing with a fly rod and we just hammered them this, this summer. And, you know, I fished a couple days with them and, um, and then, so a couple months goes by and he said, Hey Ryan, we're starting a new show called, um, Silver Kings. And would you, would you like to come to Florida and film and film a couple episodes with me? Because like, that, that TV show for the audience, it was a show based on filming the tournament. That's right. The Golden Flight Tournament. And, and cameras would follow certain you know guys, obviously Rob, and he owned the show, part owner of it. That's right. And then, so you got onto the show with Rob. That's right. And so I show up to the Florida Keys having never landed an Oceanside tarpon to, my, to the hand, okay? I'd fished a lot, but had never landed a tarpon to the hand. And... Now, back in the Everglades, I'd done some of that kind of stuff, you know, where we catch the tarpon, mm-hmm. but I was, you know, I thought I was good at fly fishing, but I didn't realize how this tarpon deal is. Like, I thought I could make fish eat. Well, I didn't realize. The Clear how, water tarpon. Are different yeah, things. this Oceanside tarpon is a whole different game of benches and pinching them. You know, I redfish, you cast past them and bring it up and they eat it, you know, and, and. I didn't, I, I thought I was good, but I, I, I didn't realize what I didn't know. And so we start, we have two days before the tournament and he goes, Hey, we're just going to act like we're in this golden fly tournament and we're going to have a camera boat with us filming us the whole time. So we fished two days and it wore me. I mean, I was, there were so many fish coming through there. It, I'd never seen anything. We, like at again? we were at the, we were at the and up towards Island Marauder, several different places we stopped right. on there, but some of it was at the so we went back to the old home home. That's hole. right. I, I recognize this spot. <laughs> and so anyway, I mean, I'm just worn out from casting to all these fish. I'm almost hoping another string doesn't come by. I don't think I've ever seen it that, you know, that many fish since then. But anyway, so this was 2013, May of 2013, right before the golden fly. And the, the night before, you know, we get off the water that day and he says, Hey, there's one spot available in the golden fly. Do you want to go ahead and fish it for real sign up? And I'm like, I mean, it's like a thousand dollars. I said, yeah, let's do it. And, uh, we signed up for the tournament and, um, you know, catch a, we, we ended up catching three weight fishes and a few releases and, um, and Julian, uh, was up in front. We watched, we were watching him and, and Joe Rod the whole time during the tournament we were fishing near each other. He ended right. up winning it. I think he had one more weight fish, but it was a high scoring tournament. And, uh, we ended up getting second the first time. And that, and you know, during that trip was my first time to ever land an Oceanside tarpon. That's crazy. Wow. And, and ended up getting second in the golden fly. So I was like, this tournament stuff is pretty fun. But you know what? Let's, let me clarify this here yeah. because you're not a complete neophyte because you had tarpon fished, but in the back, yeah. not on the sensitive oceans, clear yeah. water fish. So that relationship, I mean, you knew how to cast and knew how to fight fish, knew how to hook fish, but now all of a sudden you're in a tournament and you get second. Yeah. And, and, and you know, that says obviously a lot about Rob, you know, I but mean, also too, I mean, it's a team deal. It is a team deal. Were you nervous uh, with Rob Fordyce and this tournament? Well, I think, no. the, I think the question is, did you understand like the history and the, how big these tournaments really were at the time i don't think i did i i'd always walk in and see the the gold cup trophy there and i had you know read about all that kind of stuff and and but i don't think i knew what i was getting into and i all i knew was that i thought i was pretty good at fly fishing for redfish and and that and some of these other guys i saw in the tournament i was like i, I gotta be able to beat these guys you know and then then you get rob pulling you around and grabbing the fish and 
and then have a couple good days come together. And, and it was, it got me kind of hooked on this tournament thing. And I, right. I like fun fishing. I like the tournaments, but you know, like on our hike the other day, what I was telling you is I like seeing these same guys year after year. And without the tournament, you don't, you don't fish as hard. You don't prep as hard or, you know, Rob might all the time, but, but you know, it, I like the, the, you know, kind of the, the intensity. I do like mm -hmm. that. And, but I, I still like fun fishing also, but I like seeing these same people and how I met you, Nick, he was mm -hmm. at the tournaments. Yeah. So I wouldn't know you without sure. going to these tournaments, but seeing these same people year after year and getting to talk to them. And, and, you know, there's 25 anglers, 25 guides you get to know. And it brings you into another level. I think it does. I, and I think too, that fraternity is very important. Yep. These tournaments are the glue for the community. And for the brotherhood of these tarpon fishermen. That's right. And you see the offshore guys, I think that they'd say the same thing. I remember the first time we fished with, with Rob, I'm getting sidetracked, but I remember we asked him what he wanted for lunch, and he said roast beef. A pound of... No, no, hold, no, hold on, hold on. And we go, okay, roast beef sandwich, no problem. He goes, no, just roast beef. We go, okay, how much? He goes, half pound. We're like, the fuck? <laughs> I said, are you serious? Yeah. He said... You think I'm fucking serious? <laughs> he's serious. He he he. he eats no, no, he said no, no, no. He said you think I'm fucking kidding? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know, if it's not during a tournament, he's getting up at four thirty, going to the gym, working out. I mean, I'm worn out after just fishing. He's pulling the boat all day. Yeah. He always asks if I want to get up with him. I'm I don't get up with him when he gets up to go to the gym. You know, so uh, no. but he stays serious about it. You well, know? you 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 made something. You made mention of something a little bit ago. You said that you spent some foolish money after you sold your your rod company. Mm -hmm. What did you buy? I bought a an over and under Beretta and a Rolex. <laughs> <laughs> you made it. You hit the high. You hit the That's high. Right. So this I was like, after selling Waterloo. That's after selling Waterloo. Yeah, Waterloo. Yeah. And you, by the way, is this the Rolex you bought? No, it was similar to this one, but it was it's just well, a stainless steel submarine. I mean, if you just all of a sudden you got all this money, it's like why not? I mean, it's, it's but now you can treat yourself. But just to clarify, you started this company in middle school. You no, started, no, I started building custom rods in middle school high school and college. And that was just like, there was no brand associated with it. And then 2007 rolls around. I'm out of college, December, 2006 gotcha. okay. started Waterloo, sold it. It's still around today. And, and the guy that bought it is, has been way more successful than I was. They put some money into marketing and it's still around and on the Texas coast. I would say it's one of the most popular brands around on the Texas coast. So that, for sure. that brings up another question. Yep. Go out of college. You create a fishing rod company. Yep created Yeti, which is probably the most established, well-known outdoor company of all time. What's next? Well, you're not even 50 years old yet. He's going to go on a sheep hunt next week. That's, That's what's right. next. I got to get in shape for my sheep hunt. But <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I, most important to me, I have three kids and I, I you know, I want to, you know, spend what time I can with them and make sure that they don't turn out to be fuck ups and do what I can on, on that deal. And, and obviously, you know, now, you know, they're exposed to a lot of different things. And, and, you know, luckily my two, you know, I got a 10, eight and three and, uh, you know, my 10 and eight year old, a boy and a girl there, they love going to the ranches with me, have employees at these ranches in Kansas and South Texas and stuff like that. And, and in Port O'Connor where we fish and I like dealing, you know, I have a wildlife background. I've always been obsessed with hunting and fishing and I like messing with these ranches and proving the land, making them the best, you know, the best deer hunting, you know, you know, free range 
low fence, whitetail hunting. That's what I was always into. And I had always read about these places in North American whitetail or, or wherever. And then when I got money from Yeti, I was able to go buy these places and, and put in my management plan with the help of other people. And that's one thing that was at Yeti. We always surrounded ourselves with smart people to, and we knew where our Roy and I, when we needed someone to come in and do this and, and, you know, like the financial side or the operation side, we, we hired people we knew and that we, we knew were smart and capable, whether they had the background to that or not. And, uh, and same thing with these ranches that I have now that I like working with and on and trying to, to, to produce the best whitetails I can, the quail hunting and all that kind of stuff. So that's what keeps me busy now is the kids and right. then these different places. No, that yeah, that makes total sense. But you're an entrepreneur from day one. Yes. Are your your wheels still spinning? No, not at all. Um, for Roy, they are still spinning. But I, I more look at work as something to get you to a point to where you can do what you really want to do. And luckily, I had something that that I loved, you know, the outdoor industry and, you know, building fishing rods and meeting these people associated in the fish and tackle industry. And I remember seeing your dad you know, we were talking about it on the way over here, you know, maybe it was only 15, 18 years ago, something like that. But I remember seeing him at the trade shows uh, with, I, I think it was with Hardy at the time, you know, I can't believe it wasn't longer ago than, than 15 years. But, you know, I remember seeing you walk around the, the trade shows with no hat, your hair going, your, and your boots and <laughs> going back, ca- casting at the casting pond. Pink, pink yeah. pants. Yeah. yeah. He was always, say, look at that, that tool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, <laughs> okay, you were gonna, yeah, he did. He you did, were going to answer. He said, yeah, yeah, no, no. You were going to use another word. Don't say that. Word. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it was just, uh, you know, always enjoyed that whole industry. And um, I remember reading in the, uh, <clears throat> the Fly Tackle Dealer magazine. They, they, they had an article about Yeti. And um, they said, um, you know, my dream was to have a company, you know, like one of these rod companies, like, you know, for me, it was G. Loomis, Sage, St. Croix, um, and having a successful company like that. And uh, and so to see this really hit home when I read this in one of their, their trade publications, they said that, you know, they were talking about the success of Yeti and, and they said that, you know, now Yeti sales are bigger, you know, because we spread out, you know, to all these different industries, Yeti sales are bigger than all the companies at our show combined. Right. And they said, they said at the very end of the article, they said, don't forget where you came from. <laughs> and that always just kind of hit home that, that, you know, my dream was to have one of these companies, whether it was, you know, I remember meeting, you know, Ted at Tibor Reels and Kristen Mustad at Nautilus and, you know, Gary Loomis. I used a bunch of G Loomis blanks and St. Croix blanks. I knew all these different, you know, uh, company owners and always wanted to have my own company and to, 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 to stumble into something that was bigger than the entire industry was just crazy. It, it, it it absolutely mind. That sentence right there, something that's bigger than the entire industry. Yeah. And so you couldn't have, I couldn't do it again. That's another reason was starting something else out. Did it mess your head up in any way? This kind of success? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, maybe there's some people that do, you know, but I think I'm still pretty, you know, down to earth. And I mean, there's, you know, how has your life changed? Um, just freedom. Obviously you can buy these ranches, freedom and being able to put, you know, you know, my passion into, into, and I had a a deer season last year 
that uh, I don't think has ever been done before on, on, on your own land, free range deer. And what happened? I killed five just absolute monster deer, uh, you know, between Kansas, Oklahoma, and, and on my South Texas place uh, in, in a period of, of a month and a half. Um, and, you know, it's not all about score, but these are monster deer that we had multiple years of history of. And, and I'd, you know, I'd watched all, you know, you know, watch these deer over the years and let them get to the right age and, and, you know, track them on trail cameras or go out and try to find them or whatever. But when they get to the right age, you get the right size, they pop. Let and, me ask you something here. Yeah. And I've seen this. I'm not a whitetail guy. Yeah. You know, Nikki and I like to hunt, you know, elk. Sure. Uh, and I think we've spoken about that. I've always wondered how how I personally feel about if I had the funds to buy my own ranch and raise these animals yep. and eventually kill them when they get to a record size, mm-hmm. are we killing our pets? You know, uh, it, they're wild, and some of them are easier to kill than others, and uh, it just, like, whitetail are smart, and... And every time I kill a big whitetail, I'm a mate. Like I, I'm not there. I, there's people in the industry and that are whitetail hunters that they have the confidence. They see it. They have a picture of a big deer. They're going to kill that thing. Well, I'm always wondering what's going to go wrong. Is he going to break? Is he killed by a neighbor? You know. And, so you're saying that you cannot domesticate these animals? No, no. And every once in a while, you'll have one that has a person, different. Per, they all have different personalities. They all do different things. A lot of them are nocturnal. Uh, and if, if, if one of them has a, you know, if I can find one every time I go out, if it's a big deer and that happens, sometimes I'll decide, okay, I'm bow hunting this deer. You know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be right to go out there and rifle hunt them, right. even if it's, it's a too rifle precious. Seat. Yeah. And so I'll go out there and try to, try to bow hunt them. And so every animal's different. Every one of them has their own personality and, and every one of them seem to be fairly damn smart. Yeah. And so, and it amazes me every time I kill one. Or, or walk up on one after, you know, after a hunt, it just, you know, blows me away that everything finally came together. Cause I, I don't have the personality that thinks everything's going to come together. There are people out there that do. Right. I don't. You're a realist. Yeah. Where do, so where do, you know, you're getting ready to go into this big sheep hunt. Mm-hmm. How do you put the scale together? You've got big tarpon winning these big tournaments with Rob. Um, you cut your teeth, you know, in South Texas, but now you have these big whitetails, you have your own ranches, you're hunting, you know, these big doll sheep. I think you're going on a, on a doll sheep hunt. Yeah, the, the one coming up is a, you know, it's the same genus species, but it's a stone sheep okay. in British Columbia. So. so if you put these out on, on a board, mm-hmm. how do you assess your emotions with all of these? Because well, it's kind of com- hard to compare apples to oranges, but. It is, and, and you don't have time to do it all. And I love elk hunting. I, I I hope to do elk hunting, you know, every other year or every third year or whatever, but you can't do it all. I like hunting anything or fishing for anything, but you, you, you know, you got to pick what you're passionate about. And for me, like I tell my 10 year old Charlie, it's, it's whitetail quail. I've really gotten into quail hunting over and I didn't understand quail hunting for the longest time. My granddad was a big quail hunter. And my dad was a quail hunter when, when he had these really good bird dogs and there were quail everywhere in Texas. And now quail are harder to come by. You know, there's, it's not as many opportunities for wild quail. But luckily this place I have in Southern Kansas is just great for wild quail and I love it. And I like the exercise. Whitetail hunting, you're not doing anything. You're sitting there waiting for a deer. I, I love it also, but it's not active. But getting out and doing 25, 30,000 steps a day behind dogs, 
watching these English pointers work, point the birds, seeing the covey rise. It's just, I've really gotten into that a lot over the last, you know, five or eight years, somewhere in there. But I mentioned this to you when we were hiking the other day. And for the people that are listening that might be quail hunters, uh, Guy Valdine, who produced the movie Tarpon back in the 60s uh, out of Key West. I think a lot of people know that film. They're going to reenact it this year with Yeti. Reenact it. I'm not sure if that's the proper. Is it a documentary uh, style? I, I think that's right. Uh, my buddy Scott, that works at Yeti, is involved in it, and mm-hmm. I, you know, he's kind of told me about it. But I think yeah. they're kind of going back and doing a, a documentary on the making of Tar. And, and with these and, and, and interviewing these guys, yes. Tom McGuane. Yeah. So anybody that likes to hunt quail, which I'm not a quail hunter, but all these guys were writers, and they gravitated to Key West. There's a great book called My, uh, Mile Marker Zero. That's the uh, the title of it. Read that book. That is the ground zero of tarpon fishing. But also, too, Guy Baldine, he's a quill guy. And he bought this big plantation, a farm now. And he has written this book called A Handful of Feathers. And it is a fabulous read about somebody who's got great passion for all these animals and the game on this piece of property and how he cultivates this monster piece of property for the purpose of raising quail. Yeah, and what is it about quail that brought you to compete against stone sheep? Well, uh, I I think it's just um, it's hard it's hard to explain. And I like I said, I to me it was just a bird. Back you know when I I was in deer, I would have friends that spent all this money. You know, deer hunting's expensive, quail hunting's expensive in general. You sure, know, there's there's ways to do it without spending a lot of money, but. Uh, but I didn't understand going out and every bird looks the same. You know, it didn't, I wanted these, you know, deer antlers and stuff right, like that. Yeah. And, but once I, 2014, I got invited on a, on a quail hunt and got to see the dogs work and got to understand it. And, and, you know, I'd always been a bird hunter and considered myself a fairly good shotgun shot at doves and stuff like that. But I think what I was missing was the whole, um, you know, the dog aspect, watching the dogs work, watching the, the retrieves of the, of the, of whether it's a lab or a little English cocker, you know, digging mm-hmm. out a quail that ran into a hole underneath the log or whatever. I think that the relationship with the dogs and, and how good they are and how, what that adds to it was, is what I was missing in the quail and just being outside and being active and something different than, you know, then deer hunting where you're not, where my style of deer hunting, I don't have to be very active. The quail hunting's a lot of walking, a lot of beautiful country, mm-hmm. making a great shot. You remember these shots and, and that's what I like about the sheep hunting. I don't consider myself a big sheep hunter, but I, I've drawn some tags and I've been able to go on some sheep hunts now. And, uh, and I, what I like most about the sheep hunting is it, it takes me a little bit outside of my comfort zone with, you know, I'm a pretty cautious guy. I'm opposite of you. probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty, maybe a little bit. Yeah. Like I'm not getting on a motorcycle <laughs> and I'm not racing down the mountain here, but it puts me a little bit outside of my comfort zone and gives me a reason to kind of try to stay in shape and, and, and hike and, and lose some weight and, and be it, it because it pushes you, you hard. It, it does. And had I not taken it so seriously on my first doll sheep hunt that I drew a tag for in Alaska, it would have killed me out there just trying to carry a 70 pound pack, uh, back out of the mountains there. You know, it was hard enough having lost, you know, I, I lost 22 pounds to get in shape for that first sheep hunt. And I like having these hunts on the books to try to, you know, 
help me uh, try to stay in shape and try to work on my health, you know, because yeah. it's cool. This seasonal thing. It is. You got going for you. Yeah. When you're walking down the street and you see someone have a Yeti cup in their hand, does it make your heart feel good still? It does. I see it all, you know, all over. Everywhere. Yeah, I see it everywhere. But yeah, it always blows me away. You know, for the longest time, we were just coolers, you know. We were a one-product company and a successful one-product company. And then... Uh, the you know the the cups came along and and that was a combination. I, I I found a vacuum insulated bottle that just kind of blew me away on how it hold ice. I throw it on my brother's desk. Uh, you know, a month later he has you know two different size cups designed that twenty ounce that you have and a little bit bigger thirty ounce. And we had you know vacuum insulation had been around for a long time, and bottles had been around. But you come out with a couple cups that people use on a daily basis. And you have the distribution that Yeti does and the name brand that Yeti does. It, we doubled the company overnight. It's with, crazy. With, we, at the time, we were selling $150 million worth of coolers a year. And we had some arguments you know, internally in the company with whether or not this was a waste of time. And in one year, we sold $150 million worth of cups. And, uh, and then after that- That's crazy. It is, it is crazy. But you know what? Yeah. This ice- Right here, yeah, will be here tomorrow morning. It will. It, it, it's unbelievable, it, and it, and the technology's been around forever. But we had the platform, the brand name, and then the design. Uh, you know, there's a lot more use for cups than there is for bottles. We sell bottles now, and sell a lot of them. I use them all the time. But you, I like you open up my cabinet or a lot of cabinets I go to, and you see Yeti cups everywhere. You know, yeah. obviously you're 48, and that's obvious that you're 48. But you're 48. Yep. Your dreams have been met a thousand times over. Sure. When you're in your room at night, where does your mind go? Mm. And I'm sure it fluctuates for everybody, but what what is closest to your heart at this point? I mean, a family, my kids, my parents are both still alive, doing well. I love going. I love, I'll get down in Port O'Connor and, and redfish with my dad. I'll pull him around the entire time. He's 77. He loves redfish. He grew up in a time in Texas where, where the redfish, there weren't many redfish. And I think that's, a, that's another thing that drives you. If, you. if you're doing an outdoor activity where there's some hardships, and, you know, for me, I grew up in the Texas Hill Country where the deer were all this big. You know, they were small, but I would read North American Whitetail and watch television and see these big deer in Kansas, Iowa, South Texas, you know. And he grew up in, you know, fishing in the 70s in Texas. The commercial fishing had wiped out all the redfish. And then the coastal, you know, back then as the Gulf Coast Conservation Association, but the CCA now, mm-hmm. they helped bring back the redfish to texas and and so from that time from having spent all that time not seeing redfish to and not catching them to now being able to go out and sight cast a redfish it just every time he catches one it just blows him away and i love seeing that from the back of the boat so i'll go out and i love spending time with him pulling him around i, I stay on the pulling platform all day trying to get him to to sight cast to a redfish with a fly rod or a spinning rod. doesn't matter. He lo- just loves catching redfish, and he loves going to Kansas with me and, and going on a quail hunt. So do so you think your, your dad, being a <clears throat> child at heart, being a hunter and fisher, gave you 
the passions? I mean, because I think that you were saying in a diaper, you walked out the front door I, I mean, and I, you wanted to hunt something. Yeah, I think it was in my blood. It was in your blood. And it was from, you know, from my granddad to my dad. And, and obviously my parents were a big influence on me. My mom kind of drove me to do well in school. Um, and I didn't use any of that other than I, I, you know, graduated. Mm -hmm. sure. from high, I thought I was smart in high school and then I got to A&M and figured out I wasn't. But, uh, but you know, that drive from my mom and, and seeing my dad own his own company and seeing his outdoor pursuits and, and how he always supported my, you know, my, my brothers and my sister. And they were like living that. examples of what, what, how you wanted to live your life. hundred percent. And the, the weird thing about it is, is that, you know, having a company like Flexcoat, like my dad has, it's a lifestyle company that put all four of his kids through college. Um, what would, would also be like a dream of mine, you know? back in the day and right. then to, to have something that just went crazy beyond that just is, is it just kind of you know blows you away every day but for me what keeps me up at night is you know is is thinking about my kids spending time with my kids spending time with my family and then you know i'm still i haven't lost any passion for you know managing the land that i have now sure. for for deer and quail and and catching redfish and going to the florida keys and seeing all that the stuff you see out there you know, when you're tarpon fishing, you know, this year I saw one hammerhead. I would, I would like to see, you know, I, I love seeing the hammerheads come through the tarpon, even though they're after the tarpon, but I've never seen a hammerhead kill a free swimming tarpon. And Rob tells me the stories of that and, and scattering the tarpon like mullet sure. and doing circles around them yeah. and catching them. And, you know, I want to see that kind of stuff. And every, every day you're out there, you know, in the, in the keys fishing, you see stuff that you've never seen before, you know? You'll have your your anchor rope out, and you'll have little triple little baby triple tails hanging out below the the anchor rope. Or you'll see, you know, Ray swim by doing something. You see different little fish on the bottom. You're seeing stuff all the time that that it is just it blows you away, and it's so pretty down there, you know. Well, you know what comes to mind, you know, as you say all this, don't forget where you came from, and and you haven't. You love the simple life of hunting and fishing and raising your family. Yeah. I think that's what I love, you know, and, and, you know, I'm, that's what I care about now and, and can't, can't replicate anything like Yeti. And, and so have no desire to do it again. I just want to work with my, with my kids and work with, you know, these sure. ranches and the people that I work with. And I've surrounded myself with great people on these ranches also. And it was crazy. I think Yeti, the success is a byproduct of having fun. It, it kinda, is a hundred percent. It is because you're hunting and fishing. You have a cooler and you decide to make a better one. Yeah. It, it is a hundred percent based on seeing my dad own his own company, knowing we want to do that. We were, we weren't trying to do something like Yeti, but we put ourselves in the position where it was possible. Right. And we stumbled across a market that was so big that we could have never predicted what, what it was going to do. Right. You know? My last question is, what did you learn most from your dad during the transition period from when he quit teaching to go full-time, you know, selling flex? So all, all this is work more ethic. Uh, maybe. Uh, um, but, it, I, but I think work ethic comes from love and passion. It, it does. Right. Yeah. Cause you're not going to have great work ethic all the time if you hate what you're doing. No, for sure. So you have to, you, it's, it's a for byproduct me, of chasing your heart, chasing yeah. your dreams. So you got to remember I was young when he made that transition. Okay. 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 So I, right. I, I, I was very young. I do remember, you know, going up to the wood shop with him when he was, you know, teaching that. And I remember the early days of yet of, of flex coat and going to these trade shows. And, um, 
I guess, you know, uh, what I remember most was seeing him run a small business and knowing that's what I want to do. And I couldn't imagine working for anybody else. From the time I was in middle school and I needed mo- extra money to do something, it, it was I wanted to, to build fishing rods and I wanted to be involved in the outdoor industry. And, you know, his company was a great example for us to, to see how to run a business, all the different little functional areas. He was answering the phone. He was you know, paying bills. My mom was working on the books, you know, seeing all that growing up and being exposed to the industry that you loved. I mean, it was like, you know, it was unbelievable. And, 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 and to see what that company was able to do for his kids and and his family. And it it, was not a big company, but it, and it's a real niche and, but it was, it was a neat thing to be a part of, you know? Well, you are amazing story. You're a, you're a, you're a good man. Uh, very inspirational in a lot of ways. And what I love mostly about you and what I've heard is that you came from a family, you know, filled with hunting and fishing passions, uh, having, you know, chasing your heart to own your own company and do well uh, for your family. And you hit that home run, but you're still, now that you have what you have, you're managing properties. You're, you're still chasing your heart and helping the environment and, and chasing animals and fish. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a dream come true at 48, bro. It, it really Congratulations. is. Congratulations. I'm envious. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed getting to know you guys over the years and I, I appreciate what y'all are doing with this podcast. And, and, you know, I was, I was telling you, Andy, about, you know, I, I listen to these downloading them before I get on a plane going somewhere. And I've enjoyed listening to these stories. I've listened to about half of them and I hope to listen to all of them, but to capture these stories, uh, before they disappear. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's, like you said, it's different than a magazine article. And you see these guys, these older guys dying off down in the keys and to capture some of these stories before they disappear. It, it's really meant a lot to me and to everybody down down there and, and, and in this sport that we love, tarpon fishing and all that. And, you know, I appreciate what y'all are doing. Their stories are, are, are invaluable. They, they should not go away, and we're just trying to save them. Yeah. And yours, too. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, pal. Thanks so much, Ryan. Enjoyed yeah. it. Appreciate it, man. Awesome hanging with you. Enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Good luck on your sheep hunt. I appreciate it. All right, dog. Thanks. Ryan Cedars is a man that walks and speaks softly, unique for a man that helped design a product that changed outdoor America. He and his brother learned well from their father that famously said, if you can't find what you want, build it. And that's exactly what they did. We hope you enjoyed Ryan's story. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.